Hi, my name is Moshe Kindler, and I'm the publisher of The Jewish Link. Hi, this is Elizabeth Kratz. I'm editor of The Jewish Link. And you're on The Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. Moshe, we have a very special guest today. Yes, we do. It is the author, the cufflink writer, <laughs> um, yes. week, valued weekly columnist, Martin Bodek. That's correct. Yeah. Martin is actually really nice. First of all, it's beautiful to have you here. Um, I see you brought all your books wi- with you. Holy cow. I didn't even realize you had that many. Wow. The New Old Testament. I don't even remember that one. You came on my radar screen, I think, just really consciously with the Emoji Haggadah. Okay. okay. Even though I was aware that you'd it's written other things. Spot. And then the Shakespeare Haggadah. Um, and the Ma- Seinfeld Haggadah. Okay. Right? Yes. Festivus Haggadah, it's called. Okay. Uh, Festivus Haggadah. I guess we'll do right. maybe a quick, uh, you'll tell us a little bit about, about that. I'm just, uh, so I, we, we appreciate people who are literary. We appreciate people who are authors. Obviously, we publish a newspaper. So well, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. And uh, I guess we're going to talk about books, I guess. Yeah, in the, I'm in excited. Columns, yeah. I, we did have um, Martin on our cover of our literary link. A couple, of, was it for the Shakespeare Haggadah? It was, yes. Or, it was okay. Shakespeare Haggadah come out, and somebody in this shop decided that uh, my yeah. face belongs in front of the literary section. Big face. I'm not complaining. Cover of it. <laughs> so yeah. So for us at the Jewish Link, the books are part of who we are as people, um, and also as we in in terms of promotion, we really want to promote writers, but we also want to promote our writers. So you're sort of like a poster child for Absolutely. like you're in our you're in our zone now. Sorry, we claim you as one of ours. That's fine. You can and it, uh, I guess maybe do you want to start. Can you give us a short history of Martin Bodek from the beginning of time? Yep. Would you, oh, wow. would you mind? <laughs> and, uh, then we, about... we can, and, and then we can move to the books. How about uh, that? Let's Where not are you go, from? No, no, let's not go back more than three or four generations. Uh, right. Okay. Like, I mean, we just do have me. Zadie's War here, so, you know. But maybe st- start from your... Start from where... Where did you grow up? How, I grew up... That? Okay, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Oh. Uh, third floor of Maimonides Hospital, to be exact, <laughs> if you really want to get into it. That is a little bit specific. <laughs> yeah, okay. We don't need that. Really the okay. beginning of time. Right. Um, I was uh, born and raised there. I lived there for uh, 27 years. Um, six different houses in Borough Park. My parents moved around. Uh, most of the time it was 18th, 52nd, for those uh, who are listening who want to get the exact coordinates. Uh, I met a girl from Minnesota, hmm. and she said, I'm going to try out Brooklyn for a year. And if I don't like it, we out. So we lasted nine months and found ourselves in Passaic, where we spent 16 years. Uh, we sent our kids to Yeshiva Noam, which is in Paramus. And we knew that the day would come that they would tell us, uh, our social lives are elsewhere. Can we please uh, pull up stakes? So that's exactly what happened. They came complaining to us. And they said, uh, we need to move. And we said that we were expecting this day to come. So we moved to Teaneck. Uh, three years ago, we took the first moving company that would take us in middle, smack in the middle of COVID, and we set up shop here. Hmm. Uh, and this is where I've been uh, with my family for the past three years. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty pretty solid fast forward. Okay. And <laughs> first, which which of these is your first book? So this is in chron- chronological Oh, okay. Order. Like, I, I wrote it with me with the exact uh, 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 The New of, Old of Testament. Events. So this is, if we're going to do this, yes, yeah, so this is... Uh, I have to pull it out. Yes, I do. Take it. Let's so we can make a little bit of a mess here because we've already seen yeah. the traveling prop. Uh, so the title of this book is actually Bush 2, Book 1. This is the first book 
I put out. What I did was, and I didn't know the industry at all. Uh, I didn't know how to query people. I didn't know how to get going. When I was a kid, I wrote short stories that were all rejected. Um, I had, I think, 130 rejections for 19 there were no, stories. There was no Jewish link at the time. There was no Jewish link to help me out. So, so we like to print kids. I'm guessing you got rejected by venerable publications like the Jewish Press and others? or The Jewish Press had me, by the way. Okay. I mean, they're not going to publish books, but I, uh, had a, they were, I responded to a column once called Emet Hashem Bayou. This takes me back a little bit. I remember. Way. Oh, my gosh. Yehudit Gellis. And, and I must have been one of the first ones I responded with the male point of view because the female point of view was always presented, and that started a series hmm. of articles. And my mother uh, laminated them, and they're on my, on, my uh, on the wall in my office. I actually saw her, the Emir Tashem Bayou, at the OU Women's uh, Symposium in Edentown hmm. a couple months so ago. That's my She's a real person. Her last name is now Sandorfi. Sandorfi. Okay, good to know. <laughs> Why well, I did not expect Still to Still lives in Brooklyn. Pull this out. Still? Okay. So what I did was I turned this into a Navi, uh, a, a Nach version of the Bush presidency. And the reason I did this, why it became such a lightning bolt in my head, is because he was a very religious character. And sometimes he spoke in this fashion. So as you can see, that's the style that I wrote here. And this was my first book. Uh, this is nice. not a bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a first attempt at publishing. Um, and I'm obviously going Mechoyel El in my publishing career. Uh, and there's a Guinness record staring at me in the face that I plan to take advantage of. The world record for most rejections before publication is a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, that's such a great book. So it was rejected 130 times it's, before publication. It's, it's, I read it in college. I read it in, uh, I read it in a creative writing Heard course. Yeah. So this I, book... I probably still have it. ...was rejected 162 times. Wow. And I saved them all because I knew I wanted the record. And if... I should come back to the books here that I self-published. I will attempt to submit this for publication, and if I do, I am certainly going to apply for the record. Wow. Really funny. Okay. Wait, so, so I'm, this what year was that we published? Can, when, when, when uh, was, 2010. And That's when all, I started. You always saw yourself as kind of like so just writing was what, a pastime, and I just like just keep you up. What, what you like? How do you see it as writing a hobby? Writing was like uh, whenever you like, but weren't paying attention at work. You'd focus on writing. How, how did? Uh, so, else, what do you do at work? This, by the way, yeah, is this what you do? This is not what I do. Okay, this is what I do uh, from five to nine. Oh, wow, <laughs> nine to five is what I. Uh, usually do okay. Um, Meaning between five p.m. and nine a.m. Correct. Got it. Okay. Especially when everyone's sleeping. That's wow. that's when I get to work. Mm-hmm. Um, Christopher Hitchens said, "A writer is what I am, rather than what I do." Mm. So it is what I am. I've always wanted to be one as a kid. Um, I've always told people that writing is the one thing that, if you admire the craft, you're already halfway there. Just because mm-hmm. I like a band doesn't mean I can play guitar. Mm-hmm. Just because I like what, what's coming out of the kitchen doesn't mean I'm a chef. But they say that if you read well and you read a lot, you're already halfway to being a writer. So I've always been halfway to being a writer before I became a writer because I was a voracious reader. Um, and I always, always wanted to publish a book. That was one of my uh, initial dreams. Own a Guinness record was one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Write a book was two, which I've done. And run a marathon, which I've done. So two out of three, uh, not bad. Not bad. Um. Do you find that you read differently now, now that you're a published author? You've, probably, you've, you've written a few times. So. Oh, yeah, I read much slower. <laughs> because now I'm really paying attention mm. to, to good books and what they're not doing well in good books and what they're doing right. So Actually, I, I thought it was an age thing, but I, I, I like what you're saying. No, no, yeah. I've, I've definitely, I, I cannot, 
Uh, Cormac McCarthy is, is one of the authors I admire. I, I wrote so sure. slowly because every word is so rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's sometimes I just, uh, Child of God, for example, uh, I've read that a couple of times and I can't get past the first two pages. It's the best writing in the world. And that's generally the way I read now. It's just I really take my time, absorb everything, and try to channel it into whatever else I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So Do you the, read any yeah. periodicals? Not much. It's mm-hmm. mostly books. Okay. Books, books, so books, your, books, books. That's your zone. Yeah. And I would say also just for, you know, I think from our, the, the, your most recent book, Zadie's War, and, and, and I've been following you, Elizabeth, I've been following you for a while, even before you became a weekly columnist, which uh, is, I, I really feel like Zadie's War may have, you're, you've gotten kind of more public acclaim, more serious interest. Uh, I know you also, you tell us about your, your you received an award or, or, or an awardee consideration. Uh, tell us a little about Zadie's War and the latest. So I, I feel like it's been a kind of a different than your other your prior ones. So uh, all of this has been a lead up to this. Uh, all my skills and, and all my talent uh, has been um, informed by everything I've done here. And now I've, I've poured everything uh, that I have at my, at my skill disposal into this book. Um, and it took me a long time to put this together. Uh, we interviewed my grandfather about his life in 2003. Um, and it sat on the shelf for a while because, as we mentioned, this is 2010. So when we collected a story, my mother and I, on VHSs, um, uh, I wasn't a writer. I was just a writer with am- ambition to be one. So this sat on the shelf for a long time because I knew that when I got around to doing this, I really wanted to know how the book industry works first. I didn't want it to be a, a scratching foray. I needed to, to really really land hard and put me in the place that I want to be. So several of these books here were self-published, then, I, then publishers started finding me, and after a while, after the Shakespeare Haggadah, which really got me some amazing press, truly amazing press, mm-hmm. um, I, I thought it was time to crank this one out. I, I know the industry, I know how publishers work, I know which ones want to hear from me and which don't. Um, I know how to craft a query letter. Uh, I took a lot of learning. Um, so it took me two years to translate the Yiddish conversation into English. Uh, I, I am a fluent Yiddish speaker. We, we interviewed my grandfather in Yiddish. You grew up in a Yiddish-speaking household? Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really want to go into my past, so this is, this is a person who comes from Babov. I was in Babov uh, for elementary school before switching to Torvadas, and then I married a modern Orthodox girl, so... You've gone the f- almost, almost the full spectrum. Um, the full gamut. Hasidic to, uh, to Passaic to, yeah. to Tinek. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm comfortable at all weddings. You know, <laughs> no problems. Wherever the machitza is, I'm good. Kashrus, I understand. You know, all that good stuff. Uh, and then, uh, and then the, the, the acclaim and accolades and attention that I really wanted to garner for this book has come because I, I put all my koichis, that's the Yiddish word, all my mm-hmm. strength and powers into it. Uh, and, and it's paid off at, at, the, at the proper time. I picked the right time to publish this book. And I really like the subhead, which is, so the book's titled Zadie's War, Four Armies, Three Continents, Two Brothers, One Man's Impossible Story of Endurance. It's like, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of info in, in there. there. <laughs> this was actually uh, an 11th hour add-on by the publisher. Really? really? I was perfectly happy. Huh. You can see the cover. The cover is, uh, is my design, uh, uh-huh. and, it, and it represents my grandfather's journey from Romania to the U.S. Um, and I was perfectly happy with the way this looked without the subtitle here, but mm-hmm. she said, we need a subtitle. 
Okay. It's like, oh, okay. Listen, you hear that? They need a subtitle. Yeah. We have a running, so we have, we have a running battle. Like, should subtitle. there be subtitles on the cover or should there not be? I, we a, have cover. We do mostly. I'm a big subtitle fan, but there are some people on our staff, hint, hint, uh, who, uh, <laughs> who are not so pro-subtitle, but uh, I, think, I think that they're valuable. It's, so. it's, it's whether you need to qualify a title with more information. So sometimes you do, mm-hmm. and, as, as and a, apparently so did your editor. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it was. And I That's what I did was I came up with ten uh, prospective subtitles. I sent it off to my cousins who were very interested in the story because it's the story of the grandfather, and the the one here is the one that uh, got the most votes. And each piece represents another chunk of the story. Uh, the word endurance is there because the publisher was tired of having resilience. Quote unquote, mm. on all her covers, she's like, use anything but resilience. Got it. Use that, overuse that, use that to death. So I right. went with endurance, and it does add a little more uh, oomph uh, to what's being explained here. Right. Yeah, there, there, are, there are words and phrases that go in and out of fashion with publishers. I remember that happened with the word grit. Grit, okay. Yeah, it happened about five or six <laughs> years ago. There was, everything was about grit, you know. So Moshe, you know how we have the voices of our advertisers present in our newspaper every single week? Yes, that's how the paper works. Right, and their their voice is visible and that what they're selling is front and center and they ask for placement in certain places uh, and we're most of the time able to do that for them. <laughs> Hopefully most of the time. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of how the paper works. So one of the things that I noticed is the Pitch Meeting podcast, except for my uh, product placement of the Rishos cold seltzer mug. <laughs> we have not been super. Uh, we've not been super into grabbing uh, advertisers for the pitch meeting podcast. Yes, I think we should do that. Yeah, the time has come to uh, to, to to first of all to to bring to invite our advertisers, invite businesses that you know kind of like want to partner with us and just benefit from yeah. you know from you know from the the growing views and listens from the pitch money podcast. Yeah, I mean I think that our advertisers know that every single week they reach thousands of households um, just by tens of thousands. Of, tens of thousands just by virtue of being in the print paper, but I don't know if they know about uh, how the podcasts live online ad infinitum, you know, and they just they they just keep racking up listens. And so I think it's a great opportunity for our loyal advertisers who might want to experiment in the digital space. Oh, 100%. For our watchers, listeners who don't know, tell us a little about it. Just give me the... Uh, the highlight of Zadie's war. I mean, he was not your typical Shoah survivor. Just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, about 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 your grandfather, your Zadie. Um, so uh, you have some highlights. Maybe you want the, listed. Oh, tons of highlights. I see. There's like fifteen I'm of them. Well prepared. It took me a while. This is this was very necessary. Now when I walk around with this and I stand at lecterns, people know I'm I'm very serious. <laughs> so, yes, uh, those are the, the, the post that's always indicated. Yes. So we can we can do this visually and just talk about the journey and how we got to four armies. Because that's the piece that people stop and gape at. Like, what is that? Four armies. This is this is the the catch uh, that has people pull it off the shelves. Um, so very briefly, if you like, because there's a lot to discuss. He was uh, a, a young man growing up in Romania, and he got a, he got drafted into the army, just like anybody would at the time. Um, I actually was very curious because at Q and A sessions at book talks, people ask me about about how the draft works. 
I looked this up. There are 193 countries in the world. 103 have mandatory drafts and 90 don't. And just it's an interesting little factoid. Like people think, oh, I'll go to Israel, I'll get drafted. I heard in South Korea they have a draft. No, no. 103 countries in the world actually do this and the rest don't. Interesting to know. So Romania at the time was a mandatory draft. So as an 18-year-old, he was so summoned. This was in the 30s? This or? was in 1939. Yeah. Uh, so war was raging. War was impending. Uh, so he got a, a summons via telegram. Um, and uh, he showed up for work. Uh, he was a Jew, and so therefore he was not allowed to bear arms. So the Jewish um, contingent uh, did menial labors, and they built infrastructure, like, like roads, uh, airport tarmacs, uh, scaffolding, and such. Once the year was up, he was sent home, and you think he was done. But uh, in early 1940, I think it was, and people can correct me if they want, um, Hungary annexed a portion of Romania. Whether that was done willingly, whether it was not willingly, begrudgingly, not begrudgingly, also debatable, but that's what happened. So what was his first language, Romanian? First language, uh, yeah, my grandfather spoke, I think, six languages. I couldn't right. even enumerate. But the first language was probably Romanian, second Yid- language no, was Yiddish. probably Romanian. No, Yiddish. Oh, Yiddish. Yiddish? Okay. Yiddish, Romanian, he spoke Russian, English, and Czech. There's a lot of Czech, there's a lot of uh, Czech phrases in this book that I still don't have uh, proper uh, translations for. Um, so it was very much, in his case, like jury duty. When you switch towns, they'll right. find out that you did so and they'll summon you. So that's exactly what happened. So now that his area was part of Hungary and he was actually a Hungarian citizen, they sent him the t- same telegram again, and this time he was 19 years old, and reporting back for duty to do the same exact thing he did before. And obviously being beaten for the privilege as well because he was uh, the Jewish person among this core. While he was in service to the Hungarian army, the, so, so, so far we have two out of the four armies so far in, in, this, uh, in this grand World War II adventure. Um, one day, the Nazis show up in this, in this labor camp, and they selected the, the best, hailest, strongest amongst the crew. And my grandfather did not know uh, what this was for, but he was loaded into a truck convoy and taken to somewhere, and he just did not know where he was going. The same exact time... The Hungarian army now had a problem. They have several missing people in their staff, so they have to notify the parents. So the policy at the time, and this is probably a policy for most armies around the world, when your loved one is moved uh, in the the field, in the battlefield or whatever, or even just uh, pushing papers or whatever, they will let people know at home. So there was uh, a way of coding whether he has arrived safely or if he was killed in action. If your loved one arrived safely, the telegram will say he has arrived safely. If he was killed in action or went missing, they would say that he arrived. Because he was now in the clutches of the German army, the Hungarians dismissed themselves of my grandfather and his friends who joined him. And so they got a telegram at home. My grandfather's family did that he had arrived. Parents thought that he was dead. Then there was Machlekes. Do we sit Shiva? Do we not? At the end of the day, they did not. Because in every story like this, there's always a mother who refuses to let go. So they did not sit Shiva for my grandfather who was clearly, officially, according to the process, dead. So now he's in the hands of a third army. And where do they take him? They take him to the front lines of Operation Barbarossa. 
Most people still don't know what this is. That's because we do not properly teach this in our schools. Operation Barbarossa is the largest land invasion in military history, and nobody knows this, mm -hmm. except for you. I'm proud of you. I'm a military guy. That's okay. Invasion it of is, Russia. in fact, the largest land invasion in human history, and there probably will never be another like it. And my grandfather was right there, front and center, digging foxholes for the German army. Even as a Jew. What? That was the job. So now he's in the clutches of a third army, and this is how you get to be part of a third army. Um, and none of the Hungarians told the, told the ambassadors that he was Jewish. No, they, I guess they wanted him around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he was strong. Uh, my grandfather managed to feed himself better than most others because uh, he grew up running around in the woods, and he was a master forager. So this is part of his survival story. If we can, There's more details around that if we want to get into it. Uh, but he knew how to procure food for himself more so than the average person. He managed to secure for himself more calories than anybody else would in that situation. He ended up being uh, strong. As a matter of fact, I have uh, uh, a photo of him. Just after the war, he went to a singles event because the war was over and he was looking to, to pair up with another person. And it was just a month after the war, and he looks strong and handsome and strong-jawed because throughout the war, he was busy finding calories for himself by hook or by crook one way or another. And he knew that this was part of what needed to be done to survive. In either case, he was sick and tired at a certain point of watching uh, his fellow foxhole diggers die. Enough bullets had taken him down where he just realized, uh, I'm going to be the next one, and I'm just done with this. So one night, the Vach, uh, which is what he called the watch, the guards were looking in the wrong direction, and my grandfather stole out with a Czech friend. Uh, I don't have the Czech's friend, and I hope he did well. And I write in the book that he seems to have had the same ability, uh, moxie, uh, decision-making prowess to follow my grandfather's survival track through the rest of the war. If he got lucky, he must have survived. We don't have his name, but he was a friend of my, of my grandfather's, and uh, they escaped together. He went foraging uh, through the Russian countryside. Um, and one day, as he was rummaging through a garbage can for whatever scraps he could find inside of it, he picked up his head and found himself staring down the barrel of a gun. And it wasn't just one barrel of a gun, it was several. It was several Soviet soldiers who were rounding up people who were, who were scrounging for scraps all around the neighborhood and shipped them off to a military camp. So now he is in the clutches of Army Number 4. Wow. He's eventually moved from this military camp to a military camp near the Arctic Circle uh, in an area called Kirovsky Oblast. And the camp is called Khenor. And I have a pretty good idea where it's uh, located because he was in a spot where his job here was to fell trees and send them into the sawmill, which travels down the Volga River to Moscow, where it's packaged and sold to fund the rest of the war. Um, so I have a pretty good idea uh, of where that spot is on the map. Towards the end of the war, uh, he, he still wasn't fully... Um, absorbed into the Fourth Army, but that happened because Russia, uh, as we know, as now as well, was running out of men and guns. So they said, uh, they decided that we're going to reach out to the slave corps that we have working for us, and we'll tell them, we need men to break the back of the German army. Uh, whoever wants to sign up, you can start basic training, uh, and the reward is that uh, we'll free you. I thought this is a great idea. I can so he went from slave labor to the Russian army. It was like gladiator. Whoa. He went from king of his world to slave, 
Back back to private, which mm-hmm. is what he graduated with. He graduated uh, with his marks as a sniper. Wow. And uh, he became, I think the word is Radovoy, which is private in Russian. Mm-hmm. And he was Radovoy Bensi and Malik. And uh, this he, is an endurance story. It's, I it's see why I see why they didn't pick resilience. <laughs> exactly. Resilience is like, ugh, let me just recover. He's like, no, give it. You know, like let's survive this. I'm, I'm covering over all the all the so unbelievable good. other details. I'm just talking about the, the nail biter. Bit. And, and also, we know you're here, so yes. we already know. We know the, the outcome. The, we know the outcome. The outcome. Yeah. And he, up, he, he missed something. He, he had grown up in an Orthodox family. He had grown up in a... What kind of family did he grow up yes, in? Yes, we'll get that in a second. Let me just describe okay. the last bit, and then we'll, we'll t- talk about his parents. Um, so he signed up, and uh, on March 5th, excuse me, May 5th, 1945, he was sent out to the front lines Wow, to the battle, of, to the Battle of Berlin. You're a battle guy. You know exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! So he was not only in the largest land invasion in human military history. He was at the last battle of World War II. Wow! So the truck, the the convoy went and crossed over uh, Germany, which is why it's on this flag because he did cross the border to get there. And once over the border, the convoy stopped, and my grandfather was ready, uh, literally, to kill. But instead, the Namchalnik, he calls it, and I still don't know which, which language that is, but the corporal or general or commandant or whatever, uh, announced on his bullhorn that Germany had surrendered. It was May 8th, 1945. My grandfather said he doesn't even know where the vodka came from, but came out it did, and he, he said in Yiddish, it was a holiday, and everyone got back into their trucks and went back uh, to camp. Where and and that's how he gets to serve for for armies, and we can get to his sixteen hundred mile walk in a, in a few minutes if you'd like. But first, you want to talk about his family. Back to Romania. Back to Romania, mm-hmm. where it started. So yes, it was a, it was an Orthodox uh, family. His father was was a Rebbe, and his uh, mother was a, was a homemaker, and uh, uh, he loved to learn, and that was basically his life. Uh, he spent more time with his father learning and with his with his mother in the kitchen than he did playing around with friends. Uh, so he became a masmid as a result. He finished Shas 14 times. That's a, an excellent fast forward to get to. Uh, he finished Shas more times than there have been Shas cycles. That's an adorable little tidbit that I love telling. Um, and he was a chef for 40 years also because he spent so much time in the kitchen as a, as a youth. Uh, people are very interested to know also, and this always comes up in Q&A, so I've started being ahead of it. Uh, people asked me um, about his religion and how his, his observance of ritual while he was in these circumstances. So I, I remember asking him, and I've preserved it in this book because the second half of the book is, uh, is, uh, is the transcripts that I translated. So I've, I've retained the actual conversations that I had with him to kind of give the reader good knowledge of, of what I drew the story from. The story itself is, is linearly laid out, but the second half of the book is the transcripts itself. And in the transcripts, I asked my grandfather, Davin, did you, did you, anything? Did you, did, when it came, when a yontiv, when a holiday came around, did you manage to observe anything? So he looked at me squarely, and he goes, he goes, Davin, I'm trying to survive. There's no time to find tefillin or find eight little lamps so I could have Hanukkah. I'm trying to live. I'm trying to, I'm trying to forage here. I'm, 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 I'm digging through bear poo to get to the fruits. I don't have time for Shabbos. So I was very surprised to hear that. I was much younger then. I'm mature now. But I remember being kind of 
amazed at that sentence. It was, it was surreal. And as soon as the war was over, as soon as he was home, the first thing he did was get right back to what he was doing before. He helped rebuild his entire community. He rebuilt the mikvahs and he rebuilt the shuls and he took part in the entire uh, tikkun olam of the community. And he, he was a Babur Chazad also? He, he was in the ah, Hasidic world? Or? So well, I asked my grandfather when I was a kid, what Hasidus are you? Because we daven in the Freimene, the Freimene Shield on 46th and 13th. Uh, you do know where it is? I worked in Borough Park for years. Oh, fantastic. So, That's where they're, 46th and 13th. Uh, so there was a shtibel across the street called Freimene. Um, but he said to me, I'm not a chassidus of anything. I'm a, I'm a chassid of God. That's what he was. So the picture here uh, belies what he was in his youth. He was a, a clean-shaven, handsome young man. Uh, and this is what he looked like in his in his later years. Um, so that was very interesting. I think many people in Bar Park look like that. They started off clean-shaven. And, oh, yeah. And then their lives look, look like your grandfather. So, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But ostensibly, he spent a lot of time uh, in the Vizhnitzer Bes Medrish. Most of his Zmiris are Vizhnitz. So if you want to pin a Hasidus to a person based on the Zmiris he sings on Shabbos and on Pesach, the end songs, we'll go, we'll go with Vizhnitz. But he was, he was a man of the world. He was a Hasid of God. What was the hometown that he returned to? Uh, it was called, the area was called Marmarosh. Mm-hmm. The specific town was called Intervisheva. Excuse me, um, Oiber Vishva. Uh, and I remember that because he, um, the wife that he married came from Intervesheva, so he... Excuse me, let me reverse that again. He was, he, he was raised in Intervesheva, she was born in Oibervesheva, so he literally married an uptown girl, which is exactly what Oibervesheva means. It just means oh, uptown. Above. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and came to the U.S. 40s, 50s, 60s? When he, I have the date. He came um, 1969. Late. So uh, the reason he came to the U.S. was because as his sons, so he had uh, two, my uncles, Aaron and Eliezer, and my mom, uh, Hansa is her name. So when they were old enough to be qualified for the draft, my grandfather wasn't having any part of it. So I asked him then, because I knew the question would come up dozens of years later, or whenever I came to writing the book, I said to him, we're doing this for the purpose of writing this book eventually for you and, and your, your honor. People are going to ask about this, about evading the draft. I need an answer from you when they ask me this question. So he goes, what are you talking about? I've had enough sacrifices in my life. I don't need any more. I was like, okay. That's the answer. So I invite, I invite the audience uh, to judge as they see fit. But my grandfather wasn't, wasn't going to lose any more family members if he had a, a, his choice about it. So... When he turned 18, um, they came to the U.S. So my uncle Aaron was 18, so he, so they shipped him off to Satmar here in the States, and then Eliezer turned 18. And then it was just uh, uh, my grandparents and my uh, mother left, and so they decided in 1969 to, to leave, and uh, they made their way to the United States. Cool. And this is how they, uh, they managed to make their way here. And I, and I have the passport stamp of, of that flight, and it says uh, Ludd Airport, which was the original name of Ben-Gurion. Mm-hmm. But they stayed in Eastern Europe for a while, though. So uh, they yeah, they moved. They moved in 1951. Uh, in 1951, uh, maybe you know this as part of your your military uh, curiosity, but uh, Romania basically emptied its Jews into Israel. Into Israel right? Yeah, uh, they sent two ships: the SS, excuse me, the MS Transylvania and the MS Bessarabia, 
two boats constantly back and forth, basically emptying the country, and my grandfather took part in the process. He described that he was shopping for fruit one day in the market, and he saw a big poster that said, that said we are filling up the Medina. I'm still looking for that poster. Mm. <laughs> I have many artifacts in this book, and I have many artifacts uh, in my possession at home that, uh, that belong to him, but that's the one thing uh, that I'm still looking for. I've looked through every poster archive in the world, every Palestine archive in the world, uh, the, the joint, um, the joint um, uh, committee. Joint distribution committee. Yeah. Joint distribution committee. All their archives, I still have not been able to find it. It does exist. I'm going to find it. So he saw this sign, and once again, he thought, this is a great idea. <laughs> so he rounded up the troops and uh, made his way in 1951 to Israel. He landed in Akko, mm -hmm. uh, settled in Haifa, and from there... Um, stayed 18 years, and in 1969 moved to the United States. Interesting. Uh, well, this is the Bod the Bodak story. Um, I'm guessing the uh, your your father's side does not have as as strong a background or as interesting a story. Um, so. My my father's parents are uh, Auschwitz survivors, um, uh, and not as different. As this story is, and uh, my father's father died in 1957, so I really didn't have a chance to get his story. Um, so that's why uh, my grandfather, who was willing to speak and be on record, uh, gave me everything that he could, and so therefore I was able to flesh this out into a full book. Very special to have had that opportunity. Uh, indeed, I was amazed that 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 he he made the time. Um, we knew that we wanted to approach him about it because he always told me these uh, uh, little snippets. Uh, a dalliance or a dance with cannibalism was one of them. We can get into that if you want. No. It's not uh, necessarily for every crowd. I always ask uh, before I'm brought in, is this uh, on the table or is it off the table? If it's off the table, that's fine. It's harrowing and horrible. Uh, and if you want to read it, it's all in there. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, um, he sat down with me. Uh, what happened was, my I was just married, Roshona Roshona, and my wife had a gig as a chef's helper in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, she has grown to be an amazing chef, of which I benefit every day, but at the time she had a little gig uh, as a chef's helper. So while she was doing this, every Thursday night, I said to my mom, you know, uh, Naomi's out every week, I think this is the opportunity to go and sit down with Saidi. I, got, I, got, I, got, I could go and hang out with the boys and do, and do uh, silly things, or I could, I could finally get this story from Saidi. So that's exactly what we did. So we sat down with him for several successive Thursday nights, and I don't remember why I remember it was Thursday nights. Um, and we stopped once he started repeating himself. And it, there were several passages that was like, there's nothing new here. So I remember in the middle of the conversation with my grandfather, who's on the same story for the for the fourth time, I said, I think I think we got it all. So we did, we uh, coaxed my grandfather into wrapping up what he was saying, and we said, Zaidi, yeah. I think we got it. It'll be a story one day. Yeah. One day. How old was he at the time? Uh, Eighty-three. Oh wow. Well. Eighty-three. He passed away at uh, ninety-five. Wow. Yes. So in the last, he passed away in the last 10 years, 10, 10 years ago? Yeah, nine years ago. Nine years ago, okay. Wow. 
and when I actually when I read Zadie's War a little bit, I've 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 read most of it actually. Um, I I thought you'd be talking about his war, not just World War Two, but also his war, meaning the broader war, the war to the war to survive, the war to thrive. The you know I, I thought it was like a kind of a broader term. So um, you can interpret that as for the rest of his life. Uh, if you read the book, you know that uh, that he had a lot of uh, guts, moxie, mm-hmm. um, in in earning himself a living. I mean, he just he just have conversations with, with anyone and just look for opportunities uh, anywhere he could find it. He was one of the first three employees of Forty Seventh Street Photo. Wow! Which is another little tidbit to throw in, and like these little factoids, uh, uh, caused my wife to say one day, in exclamation, "Zaidi is like the Forrest Gump of World War II." And I was like, you know what? That's right. <laughs> That's right. He was. He was everywhere. Uh, land battles, uh, first employees in several different kinds of places, uh, just everywhere, everywhere. So let's talk a little about. I, I know you've been posting a little bit about where you've been. You know, place you've been invited. I think have you been a scholar in residence or just a speaker? Uh, oh, we'll we'll get to scholar in residence one day. Oh yeah, or or <laughs> I definitely I know you've been, definitely been you've been kind of out on the. By the way, your your publisher now calls me all the time. Thanks, uh, thank you, and no thank you, thank you, <laughs> because basically she now feels that any book with a Jewish content needs to be in the Jewish link. Tell her I say hello. By the way, okay, I okay. Will. She now calls us now whenever they're doing anything um, for her, any of her clients or any of her publishers. I know there was some kind of event you wanted us to come to in January, and. Uh, and I just seem I'm that we're now fully on her list, uh, Elizabeth. You have not gotten. I don't know if you're on her some, list. I get some. So, I get some. Uh, a lot of history. Um, there, the uh, as your genre has expanded from Shakespeare to emojis to history, we're now heavily in the history, uh, in the sights of all the publicists. Okay, uh, fantastic. Particularly mm-hmm. Jewish and European history. So, yeah. So, so if I can give a plug to my publisher, Amsterdam Publishers. Uh, she is uh, the largest publisher of Holocaust literature in Europe, yep. and she really gets behind her writers, and she's really active on social media. And every morning, she writes a blurb about every book that's in her stable and posts it up on Twitter. And I sit there, and I like them all. <laughs> every morning, wow. Every morning, wow. every single morning. Yeah, I, I definitely, I want that. She's definitely active. I mean, we, and we work with a lot of publishers, and I, I'm, I'm, I've been impressed by her. She really, she really, she really supports you guys, no question. So... It's, it's it's nice to see that you took the time to it's it's to develop your skills as a writer before taking on a big story it's 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 you didn't you didn't rush into it you didn't self-publish which we see a lot of mm-hmm. uh, you you took you found the right publisher you took your time with it so it's exciting and it seems like you did the right you did it the right way very I, very um I'm not not confidently. That's not the right word. The like like uh, with consciousness. Yes. You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was very deliberate. Deliberate. Thank uh, you. <laughs> uh, and that, uh, it was uh, absolutely the plan. Yeah. I appreciate that you appreciated, uh, but that was exactly what I was doing. It was uh, all building up to Zadie's war. Yeah. And obviously, I'll uh, continue uh, with what I've been doing before. I'm working on the next Tagada, um, and I do have other uh, ideas for for Holocaust uh, literature. Mm. Um, it cannot be revealed right now. Cause, uh, Have, haven't you published a, a Haggadah a year for the last number of years? Is I've there, tried. How, how, how's that going? How are, I think, tell us the stats here. Oh, wait a second. Yes, because the Emoji Haggadah was 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So I have four in four years. 
Oh, for, very good. Yeah. And I do intend to have one for next year, so it'll be five and five. Okay. Are you can looking... you, any, any uh, hints? Oh, I cannot give you any hints. No hints? Are you looking for, okay, I get, I, unfortunately, I get you can't hint, but I'm, gonna, I'm guessing it's going to be creative. Um, so in yeah. very much the same way that I uh, took my time before, before publishing Zaidi's War to make sure that it wasn't embryonic before, before it, was, it was published, so the Haggadah that I have in mind is going to be uh, the culmination of, of everything that comes before it, meaning I could not have written it first because I needed to nail certain modes of joke writing in order to get there. So I'm taking on a very huge pop culture property. No guessing what it is, but it's about as big as you can get it, and any layman will know exactly what it is. I, do, I did have to speak with a team of lawyers first to make sure that I would survive any lawsuits and make sure that the laws of parody protect me, so I'm taking on a big boy. Shakespeare, so actually when I, when I did the Shakespeare Haggadah, so it was a choice between Shakespeare and the other idea. So Shakespeare's dead for 463 years, I think it is. So I knew that he wasn't going, his estate wasn't going to come after me because in fact he has no surviving descendants. But the other one does have surviving descendants and, uh, and is a very large, very large house and, uh, and uh, I'm working through it right now. Okay, good. Looking forward. Do you, are you looking for ideas? Are you, are you open to ideas? Do you, do you, I'm saying, do you have, oh. maybe we can come up with a few. Connor's uh, behind the camera wants to predict Dr. Seuss. Oh, wow. That would, uh, I could do that. That would be good, right? I, so th this is what happens. Everybody has recommendations for me all the time. I don't, I don't like matzah here or there. <laughs> we can do, I can, you know what, I, I'm going to scribble that. I'm going to submit my cufflink column, and then I'm going to put pen to paper uh, for this. Just, just to oh see yes. what it looks like. By the way, so can we, can we do a brief commercial for, we, let's interrupt this, um, <laughs> this fascinating conversation to talk about our weekly columnist, Martin Bodek, who writes the Parsha Cufflink. This is, this, this, uh, this, um, Column appears every week for the most part uh, in the kids' link. When and he, the when kids he really submits like on it. time, when, <laughs> right? Sometimes you don't make it, but it's often a like a, a large picture. Like for example, this happens to be slices of cheese uh, for Shavuot, but it's not usually so obvious. That's that's one thing that's was fun about this one. Co correct. Um, we try for puns. We try for wordplay. We try for uh, single mentions of words that people may have picked up on or not. Yeah. So, and then we submit every week and people have fun. What's really great about the kids section, and I know I feel like I invented it, but also Moshe feels like he invented the kids section. But the thing about the kids link is some people are like, oh, I don't, maybe I shouldn't be in the kids section. You know, it's like for the kids. <laughs> My kids pour over this thing like, you know, like it's the Gemara. They're looking, they're looking at five fivals. They're looking at the at the cartoons. They're looking at the memes, and they are asking questions. And like Hannah, who is behind the camera still, uh, is <laughs> is our is writing the memes, uh, gathering all the memes, and and she gets a lot of feedback regarding, you know, what it is. And Shayna B for a long time, very very uh, beloved uh, kids link columnist for us, and it's a very well read section of our paper, uh, probably maybe one of the most Possibly. read. Awesome. Uh, you know, except for the cover. 
<laughs> but, I, but I want you to know that now that you're here in the studio with us, um, first of all, it's, it's good to hear you talk because actually now I hear your voice as you write the – because I, I read your pieces and obviously I, I read it. And, and, and by the way, I, I happen to like it when there's a little bit more challenging, when, when it's not super obvious. You know, I th- I'm just saying I, I appreciate it as an adult and I think our kid readers do. I think it's just when it's – when you have to put a little machshava into why is Martin Bodek showing me a picture of like, uh, you know – uh, it could be a you know cufflinks, and by the way, I was blown away. Also, you told me how many how many pairs of cufflinks do you own? You own you own I think so you, I remember it was like four or five hundred or something like no, that. No, no, not okay. It's three digits. Three. You got to have more than fifty-two. And yeah. the record, by the way, I looked this up, is uh, eighteen hundred. So so. Uh, wow. Many to go. It's a lot of cufflinks. <laughs> well, if you keep it up, I mean, you'll have to keep you, unless you want to keep renew. You'll have to keep buying new new cufflinks. So. Oh, or people could just buy it for me for my birthday, which is yeah. which is what ha- what has happened. Then people just shower me with. Oh, cufflinks because now. you're a cufflink guy. Yeah, that so makes sense. Every day in the mail, like somebody has sent me cufflinks. Wow, it's, it's really fun. So, and it it does have it enables both you and our readers to go back to the parsha and say, you know, what is this guy talking about? So it's enabling you know Torah learning, which is our you know, it's it's one of our uh, raison d'etre. What comes first, the the cufflink or the parsha connection? Uh, depends. Sometimes I just I open the the vault and I look inside and I'm like, how can I connect these things? And sometimes when I'm Marvasedra, I peek ahead, um, and it's a different way every single time. And sometimes, and sometimes there I must, get a gift you must and I'm be like, saving it for which parsha does this go with? Which mm. parsha? Sometimes you just rack your brain. Do you ever buy cufflinks to suit the parsha? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, thought, I, I just want. Seems that, like you've. Yeah. You, that was you a suspicion of mine. Yeah. I'm glad you confirmed yeah, it. Absolutely. Like for example, when I did the Pura Duma, so uh, I had two little cans of Red Bull. <laughs> so I didn't want to go with the obvious Red Bull, which is the Chicago Bulls logo. It's too easy. And Texas Longhorns also has a, yep. a, a Red Bull. I'm like, let me find something cuter. So I found the Red Bull. Like, <laughs> so like actual cufflinks with little cans of Red Bull. Yeah. Oh, mm, funny. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever stooped so low as to custom custom design a, a cufflink to match your uh, I mean have you able to find like where I hey I can't find a, an appropriate you know this partial is not working for any of my existing ones I'm not finding <laughs> it online do I need to actually come up with my own custom no I've, no I've not stooped uh, to that level okay good I'm always I'm always gonna find something mm-hmm. just want we just want to we're just holding you to make sure you have some standards that's all <laughs> okay. very that's cool okay so so you have another uh, Pesach Haggadah in the works. Yes. Another nonfiction uh, Holocaust book in the works. Is that? Um, yes. In, as soon as I'm done with the Haggadah, I'm going to jump right into. Okay. into and that then, book. what do you do in in your in the nine a.m. to five p.m. Ah, so uh, from nine space. to five. Uh, so I'm in IT. That's the short answer. Okay. It's a Two-word answer for people who uh, just who just in polite conversations want to know what I do. The more complicated answer is that I manage uh, three global help desks for who service internal employees at a major publisher uh, around the world. So you're already in publishing, in, in a sense. So I'm in publishing. So my publisher will not publish my books. They publish other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's what I do. Uh, I make sure that they provide uh, excellent service. Uh, but you have a sense of be, being being in a, working for a publisher. Do you think it is – were you looking for a job in the publishing industry? <laughs> Actually, I was working for a, an educational institution before this, and I took a small pay cut when I saw there was a publishing company because I knew that it would benefit me uh, in a major, major way, and it has. Um, so I've had several conversations with the president of the company who's given me the proper guidance and has also um, set me on the path uh, to this production 
uh, one thing that's helped me in a fantastic way is understanding how contracts work, uh, what to look for, uh, what to make sure they don't leave out, when you're being conned, uh, when not, so things like that. So I, I can now be handed a contract and, and, and sign it with confidence after I've made the changes. So that was, that was the major, major thing that I benefited from. And it's, it's no, uh, no small thing. Okay, well, so, so you really, so, so I think since, so over the last five, six years, you've become a real a professional, uh, pub, you know, not just self-published, but a real, a real, a real live, authentic author. I'm, I'm really and, proud and of you. And you can put out a shingle and consult with, uh, with our writers who are also like looking to get on this path. Yeah, perhaps. I I'm, mean, I'm happy to help. I think your, your knowledge has, has started to become somewhat encyclopedic. Like you seem like not you're not someone who does things halfway. No, it appears. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Right. Mm. You're like I'm going to write a cufflink column every single week for a year and see what happens. Yeah, it's, okay. I think we're in our second year, aren't we? Uh, we haven't we haven't renewed my contract yet for the second. Year. Ah, okay. Oh, <laughs> but oh. we could get to that. Ooh. I have to give credit to my wife, by the way, who motivated me to do this. Right. I originally did it just for my family to stimulate conversation around the Shabbos table, and she said, "You have to take this wider." Well, you were posting on Facebook, I think, correct? I do, yeah. 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 But she goes, see, you have to, you got to, it's the Jewish link. Right, the it's word link paper. is The just... word link is in there. Contact Kindler, let him, come on. Right. So I did, and here we are. Thank you. <laughs> right, so it's been, a, it's been a great, it's been a great year. We hope you will uh, agree to uh, the contract negotiations, <laughs> such that they are. Wait a minute, but it has been, it's been a year, right? I, I haven't checked. Yeah, it's yeah, been a full, we, we've gone through a full, a full Hamisha Chomshetor cycle, correct? Yes. yes, okay. When we get to Rosh Hashanah. And I missed one week, because one week, and I don't think anyone noticed, which is, which is good. Right. Yeah, that <laughs> that does happen. It, does, it happens yeah. to all of us. I, I know there's another dimension to Martin Bodek, which is, and I know you've had a few injuries, and Elizabeth and Oh, yeah, marathoning. Sure. Which is, which is running, sure. which, which, I, which I know is kind of like just a side. Oh, so you, you say you work nine to five, you're writer five to nine. I think you have a nine. new knee or a new hip or a new both. Hip, yes. A new hip. That's okay. like a new Cool. So I'm saying, when do you have time to run? And also, just tell us a little bit about. Uh, do you, you sleep? Know. Maybe. Yeah. No, maybe no, no sleeping. Yeah, it's always been optional. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the I, running, because as a runner, I'm interested in hearing. I, I know, kind of, I'm also looking at you. I'm like, oh, we're kind of like at the same physical level. So <laughs> it looks like, yeah. Um, but, uh, so we have our mutual friend David Rohr, who yep. always deserves a name drop, and uh, he's a capable columnist in the yeah. Jewish Link yeah. as well. Very talented. Um, I've been a runner all my life. Uh, started lifting weights at 15. Did that for a long time, and uh, one day I saw run the New York City Marathon on the side of a bus, and I was like, I can do that. So I did that. What? <laughs> what? Eh? Just like so, that? Just like that. And you saw no reason not to do it? I didn't see it. So the 1996 New York City Marathon was the first race I ever run, ran. Wow. And How I old were you? I did not know what I was doing. So, so I you were like, what, 22? I was 21. 20, yeah. Uh, oh, I just dated myself. Uh, <laughs> firmly Gen X. Right. Um, I did not know Don't what worry, I was doing. you're among friends. I did not know what to wear. I wore high tops. What? With leg warmers. What? No. Because well, actually, okay, yeah. leg warmers were already leg out warmers, over by then. Right, the 80s were done, but yeah. I still hung on because I didn't mm-hmm. know what I was doing. I did not oh know how to hydrate God. or feed my. I did not know anything. It was, the, it was the one thing I threw myself into, threw caution to the wind, in a major, major way. Uh, no deliberateness. You didn't do research. Way that I suffer. I did had, you? And you completed it. I completed it, but yeah. but there was a lot of suffering involved. I mean, I guess when you're 21, you can do stuff like. And crazy it took you how long? Like four that. or five hours at it least. It took me uh, my first one, if I recall correctly, four hours 46 minutes. Not bad. Uh, I'll have to check. I'll have to check oh the records, God. but I think that's what it was. You ran the whole time. Uh, no, the leg warmers ended up around my ankles, <laughs> and I couldn't get I them off. I would have thrown those away. <laughs> the blisters, I had blisters inside both arches that were the size <gasps> of my hands. 
Oh I had no clue. I don't think any of the other runners had a clue because if you look at pictures of runners back in the day, they were all wearing um, tube socks, tube uh, socks yeah. on their hands to keep warm. There was no, there was no wick away. There was none of this yeah. technological wizardry and stuff. People didn't know what they were doing. They had cyber, they mutton chops to keep themselves warm. Nobody knew what they were doing. Oh my God. Um, and you weren't turned off. And you weren't turned off by that experience. You no, that was like, I got to do this again. So I did this again and again and again, oh and um, my little uh, my little tidbit is that I'm the 200th person to complete 20 consecutive New York City marathons, which is very cool. And you had to miss you missed a future injury, I think, correct? So last year I missed it. Um, I had my hip replaced two years ago, and I was recovering and on a good track, but I had the world's biggest sciatica attack. Mm. So I've been injured and in, uh, a lot, but we're in good shape this year up to 25, 30 miles a week, and uh, we have 93 or 92 days left to train for the New York City Marathon. And you had no problem signing up? You're, you're able to, uh, to, to sign uh, up? Because I've done 15, the New York City Marathon they allow does, you. does you a favor, and uh, the grandfather you in and let you run. Oh, wow, okay. I, I, didn't, I, I forgot about that. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, they don't offer it anymore, but since I'm, I'm an old-timer from the, from the last millennium, they, they let me keep going. So you're, you got a, you're a grandfather, and even you're not a grandfather, or yeah. you aren't. Okay, got it, wow. <laughs> Oh, well, it's a bit of a res- renaissance man. Absolutely, yes. Athlete. I love. I love, I love, I love guys like you. Also, yeah. just uh, I just love. I, I like your story, Bubov, to where you are today. But but here's why my point is is that you love. You still. You didn't put anything behind you. Meaning, it's not just a matter of you can dance at every table. So you still have. I mean, you're still very much in all those worlds. Meaning, yeah. not many. A lot of people they they, they grow up a certain way. They're like. They disdain sometimes, you know, how they grew up or they disdain the communities they're from. I don't see any of that. Yeah, you take who you are along with you and you celebrate everybody. I appreciate that. Thank you. Pretty good. Yeah, I mean, my whole life, yeah, I bring along with me. It's all me. Yeah, it's good. It's nice to meet someone who's, you know, so self-confident and assured. Yeah, well, uh, in, you, in don't, an identity you don't realize it, but just your 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 marathon story actually really underscores everything. The fact that you yeah. have no idea what you're doing, and we're not dissuaded <laughs> at all by the fact that it's it's actually and you're pretty like, crazy yeah. for someone. Side of a bus. No, it's yeah. no, it's the reason why you're actually you were able, you've been able to uh, write these books to you know to I'm saying it's it's just you know you you I'm, I just to me the the marathon story explained everything. I don't know where you must yeah. have gotten it from somewhere growing up in Bar Park, your mother, father, or something, and growing up in the Bubba community, or is it just <laughs> where the where they where get you know where there's really an emphasis on getting things done, you know, just uh, act on on action. I don't. Yeah, know. so I, I agree. There before there was a I think it was a television show, but it there was a, it was a phrase before that of people who had a fear factor. Uh. The fear factor. It was it, it's an idea of having fear against that prevents you from achieving your goals. I don't think you possess that quality. Um, so let me answer each of your points here. So first of all, I get my endurance and resilience from my grandfather, no question. I'm also a fan of results rather than process. There are many people who think mm. you need a process and then the results will follow. I disagree. You need a, an end vision and an end goal. I want to own a Guinness record, so I'll do what I need to do to get to it. I'm still mm. working on it. Um, so I'm a results-oriented kind of guy. Uh, as to your point, um, so I confront what I'm afraid of all the time. I lean into it mm-hmm. as much as I can. Everything that I'm afraid of, I tackle. And uh, I think it's the one quality that I've given to my kids, which I'm very proud of for myself, and I'm very proud of them all the time. Uh, I used to be, I used to have crippling, body-shaking stage fright. 
The worst you could possibly imagine. I used to, I remember once, uh, it was in eighth grade, I was asked to present something to the class. I fell apart in a heap of tears that looked so comical that children were laughing at me. So it only would have exacerbated the condition, but I remember I went home and I said to myself, I've got to, I've got to not have the same result ever again. So I'm always afraid of speaking in front of crowds, but I do it anyway. Uh, this book tour has been uh, uh, an awakening experience for me because I'm afraid every single time. I'm stressed out every single time. I cannot eat uh, for hours before every experience, but I do it anyway because it needs to be done. Because the re result is that I spoke in front of a crowd. The process is getting over the fear and working through the fear. And that's, that's, that's the way I am. That's great. Very good, very good life lesson. Yeah, that's a, that's a really nice way to, to end. Also, yeah. Martin, I like that. That's, yeah. that's great. Thanks for your time. Thank Thanks you for being much. with us. Thank you. Your absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for being with us on the Jewish Link Pitch Meeting podcast. If you would like to participate or be in touch with us in any way, please email us at editor at jewishlink.news and follow us and find our podcasts wherever you find podcasts.